You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, listeners. This is Annie, and hello, Jordan. How are you? I'm doing well. How about you, Annie? Good. I really enjoyed the beautiful rain we had yesterday. I realised I was lying back thinking, this is such beautiful rain. Mind you, I wasn't living out outdoors. I'm not homeless, so <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I remember um, commuting to work in that rain, and um, oh god, it was uh, that was a whole experience in your, in itself. When you know you were calling me, and I was having my work bag in one hand, and a whole bunch of you know wet weather gear on at the same time, just kind of shuffling around a tram. And it's a bit of know. a shock, isn't it, when uh, there's hardly ever any rain? It appears. Yeah, it, yeah. it was. It was such a lovely downpour overall it really just added an extra layer of serotonin for the morning um <laughs> certainly yeah so and speaking of serotonin hopefully we'll we'll get you out of it a bit, little bit um we've got quite a bit on for today um i'm actually going to be kicking off one of the first pieces as i had a chat with um a good mate of mine uh philip DiBiase, who was running an independent campaign in broad meadows and um he, in Hume. Yeah, in, in Hume, specifically, yeah. So um, he was working in uh, Meadow Valley Ward, which is extremely sizable, and that had its challenges when, you know, you could only travel five kilometres, and uh, he's got much to say on that front. Um, beyond that, I went and attended a lovely Zoom meeting with a group of uh, comrades across the pond, as I'm affectionately calling them, um, a collection of uh, Labour Radio Podcast Network. Um, or at least that's the organization that they're um, uh, going by, the name of them. And um, they they had the kind courtesy to invite me, uh, and yourself, of course, as well, um, along to uh, their weekly sort of Zoom call as they had a chat about what they were working on, sharing ideas. And um, a lot of people ended up talking up to the, you know, or talking to the, um, you know, the, the only Australian in the room to some extent. But um there was a lot of discussion about the PRO Act going around and a lot of friendly folks, so um, I might have a little chat about that as there's a lot of stuff happening in America, but um, a labor law reform piece is um, obviously a very tantalizing bit of news. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I went out to uh, the uh, outside the magistrate's court this week. Good uh, on you. Uh, part of uh, the support solidarity uh, gathering outside the magistrate's court for Chris Breen, who's... Uh, contested incitement case hearing was on on uh, the Wednesday the 27th 
Uh, and so we've got a little bit of stuff from there. We've uh, also got some interesting stuff from Invasion Day. Of course, 3CR did it, a wonderful job. Uh, we really proved our, our worth by being at uh, the inv- uh, Invasion Day mm. rally here in Melbourne. And, uh, Great we're coverage able- too. Yeah, yeah, and we're able to uh, broadcast. Because it was a huge gathering, uh, it uh, set off at uh, Parliament and listeners will probably would probably have been there, uh, you know, maybe. But anyway, it was really strange because I, I was there because I was supposed to help out uh, by, be, you know, doing a cross of speeches because uh, I was intending to have speeches all the way down. But, of course, there were so many people and because they were dealing with uh, COVID restrictions, they had this inc- incredible series of a hundred uh, lots of people mm. uh, from the top of uh, uh, Burke all the way down to uh, Flinders Street, uh, down to Flinders Street. But they set off walking in those groups before they'd done the speeches. Mm. And that was one of the things that was so remarkable about 3CR's uh, presence because halfway down that march, they were able to broadcast 3CR's uh, broadcast of the speeches who were up on uh, from Parliament to the people who were f- much further down and mm. who wouldn't have been able to hear those speeches unless they then went to the uh, podcast of those speeches that 3CR have got on the uh, on our um, website, which has mm, mm. really proved our a purpose, but oh, anyway, we've... Ab- absolutely. Um, I think the the one takeaway that I can uh, you know take away from the invasion day rallies. I, I was listening at um, home as uh, I was unfortunately still busy with other stuff. <laughs> you know, that's, that's sort of the the working class struggle to some extent. And um, I will say that the one thing that kept jumping out at me at that was that there was always uh, one or two speakers coming on and reaffirming, stick in your groups. Don't give the state any reason to want to shut this rally down or push against it. And it didn't happen. Um, It was, I mean, as far as I could tell, just remarkable that, you know, everyone was so willing to work with each other. You know, this wasn't just an organized strike. It was a thoroughly, meticulously, you know, to the the hilt of the legal system organized. (laughs) Yeah, um, Yeah, it's a... It's, it should be a huge achievement to all of the wardens, you know. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I, mm-hmm. I've, I've got a, a bit of um, material from box popping. That's basically what I've got to contribute this morning. Some of the stuff I found quite interesting. Um, anyway, that's the uh, – and then I'm going to follow it up with a little bit of a um, – excerpt from a thing from a book room. It's a book room event. Uh, Tony Birch and Samara um, Anwar, who uh, they are, uh, Book Room is uh, launching their podcast to today, in fact, and website. Lovely. And it's a, uh, a conversations with uh, authors who are um, author talks, uh, which you know, people who write books that are, reflect society mm. and um, uh, issues within society. Um, and uh, they're talking to Tony Birch about his book, The White Girl. Uh, it's run by the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. So it's uh, quite an interesting sort of uh, 
uh, initiative on their part. Uh, so it's called Book Room and its podcast will be thoroughly interesting. Next next time they do a chat will be with Randa Abdel-Falah. Uh, sh- she's got a book out called Coming of Age in the War on Terror. And uh, interestingly enough, you can go and listen to the whole of the podcast. Um, I've only got a little exit, but uh, she's at the end of the uh, thing last night, um, uh, Randa, and uh, she had this really fascinating thing to say, um, which came out of the research that they had from coming of age in the War on Terror. And what she was saying was that the it, it's around uh, discussing with uh, kids uh, from different uh, uh, suburbs of Sydney, uh, how the age of terror uh, and with all the different legislation in Australia and how it affects them. This is uh, Muslims, uh, 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 people of Muslim families, right? Mm. And what she pointed out was that in her research, she found that class was a defining element to people's... uh, uh, understanding of uh, and role within that uh, war on terror. So if you're of a, a, a Muslim family who lived in an affluent suburb and the children went to a private school, they had exactly the same level of comprehension as their classmates who were non-Muslim. Oh, While if course, you lived yes. in a, uh, a, a working class suburb, it was a completely different experience. So class as a, 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 a defining element of your uh, experience of the world reaffirms itself once again. Mm. Yeah, fascinating stuff altogether. Anyway, yeah. so much on to talk about. We might as well just get straight into it. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. As always, this is Solidarity Breakfast on Saturday morning at 3CR. Um, This week I had an interesting chat and it wasn't a particularly difficult interview to do because it was my flatmate, you know, all biases declared. (laughs) But um, uh, I had only moved in with him very recently. Uh, We were good friends uh, long before I I moved in with him. Uh, But he was going through quite a bit of an interesting experience and juggling a hell of a lot. Uh, So he was uh, actually running as an independent in Hume Council. And uh, for anyone who's not familiar with where that is, it is north of Moreland Council and uh, encompasses a pretty massive growing shire of people. And um, obviously every time the council elections come around, uh, wards get distributed and there's a lot of contention about that. Um, It was an interesting reflection with him because um, all biases declared I was working with uh, Catherine Copsey for Lake Ward in Port Phillip. So I had the members' experience to some extent, working with a party as opposed to an independent. Yes, specifically, I should say, and um, that was one experience. But because Port Phillip is such a smaller council, um, there was a real 
it, it was a completely different, different story. Issues. Yeah, yes, very di- different issues. And also uh, various elements of stories that we've been covering here on Solidarity Breakfast have been the uh, industrial fires and that mm. sort of stuff that affect the people in Hume. Uh, he's also a Broadmeadows boy too, isn't he? Phil? Yes, of course. Absolutely. Um, look, without further ado, it might just be better to let him speak for himself. My name is Phil. So I had uh, started university in February, but that actually had to stop because I decided to run the council election. I decided not just to run myself, but uh, to run two other candidates as well. So uh, three of us, uh, one in each of the three wards in my area. Yeah, so a total of 11 positions and uh, something in the order of 65 different candidates. So I was an independent. But we were going to be endorsed, and it was going to be endorsed with the Australian Labor Party. Of course, I can't speak for the, you know, say that it was a fact I was going to get endorsed, uh, but I was certainly in the running. It was supposed to be done around uh, April, right? But then we were waiting on the Victorian Electoral Commission to finalise, you know, the, uh, the the ward, so we even would know where we were going to be pre-selected. And by the time that happened, which would have been June or July, you know, the intervention had taken place, and we were just uh, stuck in limbo, waiting waiting for confirmation on the pre-selections, which eventually were cancelled. How how did the campaign go overall? For me, it didn't go well because I didn't get elected. <laughs> I think I came seventh or like eighth for four positions off memory. Um, but you don't really know because they don't tell you, like, you don't know if you had beaten someone by one vote, you know, where their, their preferences would have gone. You don't really know. My other two candidates, they were last to be distributed, which is, is like, you know, a, a great title. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, it's God shining his light on you. You know, if that's your first time you've, you've ran, you're last to be distributed. You've done one hell of a job. So... Your, your experience is going to be slightly different to mine because I was working with uh, Catherine Copsey who was running in the Lake Ward for Victorian Greens in mm-hmm. Port Phillip for the council elections. But I had that perspective from a member's perspective. So I'm wondering, what strengths did campaigning during you know, a pandemic have, if any? No, it was a terrible... Um thing to do I would inflict it on my worst enemy I mean my only solace is that my worst enemies and I politically uh, went through the same process that was my only solace I mean that's a good benefit yeah I'm just like well you know what hey you know this hurts a lot but at least they're hurting more Uh, you can't there's just so many it was you couldn't do you couldn't do anything really you couldn't do basically anything as a new candidate you need to door knock we couldn't door knock as a new candidate, you need to hand out flyers at a train station. You can't... There, there, no one was going on the trains. As a new candidate, you need to go to the shopping centre. The shopping centre was closed. Literally, the Royal Meadow Shopping Centre got closed because there was an outbreak there. The one thing that's exempt, shopping centres, was actually not exempt in this case. You can't go within five kilometres... So campaign within... Initially, it was five kilometres of your house. Then they said you could campaign, campaign within your ward, but there was two different sets of directions. There was a set of directions by the VLGA, Victorian Local Government, something, and then the Department of Health and Human Services, and there's also the Local Government Inspectorate who were trying to enforce both of it, which didn't make any sense. So one thing was happening, like, one of our political enemies would send in a complaint that, you know, we were campaigning in our electorate, which, of course, is what you do, and they would cite one set of rules, and then the Local Government Inspectorate would call us, and then I, would, I literally cited them the other set of rules, and like, oh, yeah... Yeah, we'll have to get back to you. And of course, like they never did because you know it's just so confusing. 
Um, we had scenarios where people had core flutes and you could put it on the person's fence. So long as the fence didn't mean you had to step into the property. So, like, someone who had, a, you know, like, five cent, a fence five centimetre in, into their driveway, you know, like, you'd like, you have to lean in, you know? Or, like, you, you could put it up, but you couldn't hand it to them or something. You know what I mean? It's just, it was just mental. Uh, other little quirks that I think we'll never have to, hope, hope we'll never have to experience again. Um, so, you know, door knocking. Oh, yeah, uh, you know, your, your volunteers had to live within your electorate and if they didn't they could only go within five kilometers of their electorate so that yeah so it became a crazy race of not who had the most volunteers it's who had the most volunteers within a five kilometer radius and or your specific electorate it was a campaign too to get pre-selected i just was like if if you want because you had to get physical signatures so they hadn't actually updated you know the requirement Mm. so the signatures had to be physical which was insane you couldn't go within five kilometers. So it wasn't just a race to get 10 signatures. It was a race to get 10 signatures within five kilometers of your house or your campaign manager's house or something. You know what I mean? It's mental. Right. And, you, and you had like two weeks to do it, you know, mm. and a 31 page questionnaire and interviews. Mm. Hell. <laughs> interviews. We had to get interviewed. So how did you manage any of that? It was difficult. Let's just put it that way. Um, I managed it with sheer resolve and iron will. That's typically me. That's how I get through things. Um, managing it for one candidate is one thing, but managing it for two others is another as well. Um, especially when it turned out that one person had signed up like 11 months ago, thought they were a member of the ALP. Turns out they weren't. Like, there was some hiccup. So we had to get that fixed as well. You know, and you had to get it fixed before a specific deadline. And, oh, it was a nightmare. Yeah, oh, and another weird thing was, off memory, the candidate could travel anywhere within the electorate, but the campaigners could only be even within five kilometres, even if they are in your electorate. There was a bit of confusion about that. Even my volunteers, while well, like, you know, I'd say, you, know, you can do this, you can do that, and they're like, oh, I don't want to get a fine, you know what I mean? And we couldn't issue them permits, because it was permits at that time as well. So that was just, it was just a nightmare. Oh, organising printing, that was mental. And just getting the printing delivered, that was another story. So, like, they can try and issue the guy a permit, and they did, and hope he doesn't get pulled over. And if he does get pulled over, they're going to say, well, this is a printing business, why are you travelling, you know, to the other side of the city? I had one printer in, like, Broadmeadows area, and he had to deliver stuff in Frankston. Uh, Some of them were just closed. Half of them, you know, it was just just mental. What was it like for your volunteers? Tough. I couldn't organize. I I probably had only 10% mobilized. And they were only mobilized for a short period of time towards the end when restrictions were getting a bit easier. I, I, I had a list of about 35 people that I could rely on that I made up before COVID. And the, <laughs> had three or four people that could be solidly relied on. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. I guess this would have been compounded because Hume is such a big electorate. It's huge. Um, my ward is almost... This, it's two and a half times roughly the size of the state electorate. That's just the ward. And I was dealing... Some, I was in Meadow Valley ward and I was dealing with someone in the Jackson's Creek ward and that's about twice the size of my ward. It's basically like a federal electorate. Wow. Guess how many okay. people I had. Guess how many electors were on my electoral roll. Don't know at all. Well, I had 55,000. In my ward. Oh, shit. Yeah. And the other ward over was uh, 58,000 and then 39,000 in Jackson's Creek. So that is 
again, twice the size of a state electorate. It's obscene. Really, just ridiculous. Do you think that, given that there was some pretty excruciating challenges through all of this, Mm. do you think that that upset the democratic process in any way? Or was this just limiting the ability of, I guess... The democratic process still happened. People voted. That's the democratic process. The process will continue whether or not politicians exist. <laughs> That's kind of a fact that some politicians don't like to hear. We, we could all get killed in a bus accident and there's 100 people lining up to take our place. And we know this because about 100 people, you know, run in, in, you know what I mean, in the election. Like, there's, I think it's the only job in the world that literally has about in my in my electorate I had 25 roughly 25 candidates right so if I got elected and got killed there are 25 people that can legally be called on to be allowed to uh, to, to, to take my place you know take the place so the democratic process will run it's just campaigning that's all it is so even if there was like a mountain of regulations put on campaigning mm-hmm. you'd still it'd still be fine it would it would still you know be productive democratic or yeah and i think there should be regulations and campaigning in some respects um how to vote cards should be out for example you should just have one sheet put up on the wall and they can see that when they go to vote and that's it and that's that should be the limitation in my opinion that's just a waste of paper it's a waste of time it's a waste of resources it's a it's you know you you i mean big parties can do it we can get you know four people per booth total of 54 people to give up a Saturday and you've got to times up by two because you've got to put them in shifts so I mean at one point when I was running a state campaign we had about 100 and something different volunteers rostered across different booths you know because yeah um, yeah to just hand out how to vote cards it's an incredible amount of of effort um, and incredible amount of printing and then you throw it out same with core flutes in general as well my perspective from this was that I was doing a lot of phone banking, where previously the ACT was just getting ready for their ACT election, where I was working with the ACT Greens. But then when I moved down here in Melbourne in July, I then switched to helping the Port Phillip campaign. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just a switch up in the sense that, you know, I was switching campaigns, literally, mm-hmm. but suddenly I ended up doing a lot more phone banking, a lot less door knocking still distributed flyers and managed to find ways to, um, you know, go for my daily exercise with an extra satchel and um, a bit more of a complex route than normal, so to speak. Uh, But I still kept it all up to regulation, I suppose. Did you hear anything from any of your uh, volunteers about their experiences or what their perspectives were like in relation to dealing with this? Yeah, it was very difficult. We basically had no, you know, the volunteers were very hard to organise because of the whole situation. So you just had less overall? Yeah, in every way. Uh, we also tried a bit of phone banking down in mine as well, and uh, it was it was very difficult because a lot of the phone numbers were like landlines. It was just very difficult to get through to people, and you just got a crazy amount of people hanging up. We, we actually had a lot of people that we were talking to um, just grateful that they could chat with someone yep um yeah that, that you you get that sometimes and that's about right but yeah it's also difficult explaining the name unless they're there writing it down right they're not really gonna remember who it was that called them 
And we weren't endorsed as a party, so I couldn't say the Labour Party, which they would remember. I had to spell my, you know, long and complicated last name. And then, then they need to hold on to that piece of paper and, you know, hope to God they remember it when the time comes. That's a bit stacked against the independence then. No, it's, well, I, it makes it harder, sure. There's also a different, a lot of people see politics and they go, oh, you know, stacked against the independence. Oh, you know, they've got a, a party behind them, right? Well, not really, because it's, it's like going to the shops. When you go to the shops and you buy something, when you buy, I don't know, a brand of milk or some medication, right? They've spent years building this brand. They've put lots of time and money and effort into it. I can't set up Phil's paracetamol and expect to charge the same as Panadol because of obvious reasons. But there are other things where people could say it might be unfair with the party. Like, uh, when it comes to the Senate, it might be a bit difficult because of the way preferences get allocated. I know you have a sort of a keen eye for a lot of local union issues in particular. Did any of your volunteers or people that you were speaking to raise any issues with you while you were campaigning on sort of the trade unionist bent? Oh, jobs was, you know, a huge issue. Everyone was at home. A lot of jobs couldn't be ported, you know. Um, And a lot of casual workers laid off. And it was kind of like a question of, should we demand things now that things are so tough economically? Mm. Right? And... In Broadmeadows, there's a really high unemployment rate. It's it's not just a regular issue. You know, at one point it was about 25%. That's Greek level. Like That is always an issue. And then it was amplified and put on steroids, essentially. And so trade unions, just real quick. Um, yeah, it's just like, oof, do we push it? You know, do we get the union involved? Do we do this? Do we, you know, I think that's what it was. It's like not wanting to, to wreck things any more than they already are. So there, there was an actual people. reluctance to to push back from a lot of people. Yeah, there was pushback, and and so it was pushed back a little bit on business. Business was saying there's nothing we can do because it's the government, and then it all I guess was on Daniel Andrews's shoulders, politically, publicly. Hmm. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, from from the people that I spoke to, I actually had a lot of people talking to me about. Um, uh, prospects of telecommuting initiatives, so you know subsidies to work from home or encourage mm-hmm. people to work from home. Mm-hmm. A lot of people raised um, the curious industrial issue of injuring yourself in your at-home yep. workplace. What do you uh, do? Yeah, no. I, so, so I mean, that was some of the more interesting ones that um, came out of that. Are you planning to run again, given the circumstances? It's a tough one, and it feels like a non-year. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't uh, you want to say that maybe this experience is void because of COVID? You know, potentially. But running again, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a good campaign manager. It would seem like both of my other candidates did better than me. <laughs> so I might just stick with campaign managing. To be honest, um, uh, I've always been interested in in state and uh, federal issues. So I'm going to see what I can do there around ad- advocacy. And if that leads to a path where people are saying, Phil, you know, you shouldn't just, you know, be pushing, you know, the candidates to, to support this. You should be one of them. And then you should be pushing from the inside. Then look, I wouldn't say no, but it would, it would be very, it'd be very interesting. It'd probably be down the track. Was there anything that you explicitly wanted to raise about? One thing we were getting was, oh my God, that's ridiculous. You couldn't letterbox. You could. So one one thing they were saying you could letterbox drop in your electorate only from the. Um, I think it was the VGA, 
And then another one saying you could let a box drop from the Department of Health, but only within 5Ks of your house. Now, the irony is you could hire a company to do the letterbox dropping. No problem. You have to pay for it. Why do you think that is? Well, the company, one big company called Salmat, for instance, um, I spoke with them on this, and they said, well, because we're so big, essentially, we're able to get an exemption because we get contracts, for instance, delivering public health notifications. Um, We've got doctors who advise their new COVID hours, right, Um, via letterbox drop or um, saying that they're closed or something like that. Um, apparently that's, that's what they did. And so they were being able to class, be classed as an essential business. Whereas the average Joe couldn't, even though it was the same thing, which is insane. And so how then you're supposed to campaign. And so like, this is one of the things you'd say is unfair because if you have money, then you go for it. But if you don't, then you're screwed. Or do you break the, the rules? You know, which, which rules, which rules do you want to break? Which rules do you want to follow? Did you hear any other stories of people breaking rules or other campaigns i'm not necessarily saying name names but did you hear stories or yeah so we definitely had one candidate and there's no way on earth they'd gotten the distribution paid so they were definitely doing it themselves and they were definitely doing it outside their five kilometer radius no question um and they'd gotten the worst part is they got volunteers to do that as well so they got volunteers to go beyond their their 5k so there was virtually no mixed messaging. Volunteers couldn't go within five kilometers of their house to campaign. The only mixed messaging was whether or not you could go within five kilometers of your house. But there was definitely a number of volunteers involved and they were certainly going well beyond 5Ks. A lot of general rule breaking as well. People not respecting public property in in general. So just putting signs up on on council land. Um, But there's a lot of hypocrisy in that because we had... Since I know one councillor was telling one candidate off for doing it, and they were doing it themselves. So I was like, well, what's going on there? A number of ballots were taken from letterboxes in um, the electoral ward. So 200 or 300 were taken, and 200 or 300 people calling up, all on the same street, saying, hey, I didn't get my thing, you know, when Australia Post had proven it had been delivered. Simultaneously, people called in saying they didn't get it, and those ballots were still being returned, even though they said they'd said they didn't get it. And then they'd been signed in, you know, all in the same pen, all dodgily, you know, all nothing like the signature on file. Did you want to add any broad comments about your experience campaigning through this time? There are so many candidates, people who think, oh, I'll just put my hand up, and they really don't know what they're doing. I think if anyone else or anyone wants to run... Just try and have an understanding of what you're doing first, because there are so many cowboys out there slinging either mud or just going in and getting destroyed. And it's good to be, you know, to participate, but like, just don't be that person. There's always one who says, oh, well, we're not going to issue a how to vote card. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. Because the purpose of a how to vote card is to make sure your people, for an example, number every box if you don't put that out there I can guarantee you there's always going to be at least one or two people who are just going to put your name number one could be your grandma or someone and then just mail it in and I've seen that many elections you know been off by 10 or 100 votes and you sit there wondering was was it this was it that was it this was it that you know 
Also, you know, plan it more than six months ahead, please. <laughs> and by plan, I mean know you're going to do it at least six months beforehand. And, and yeah, just try and work with people. That's, that's what I would say. Because there's a lot of people in there just to tear things down. Uh, they're always against something, but what are you for? Hello, we're the Community Union Defence League. And we're a community organisation stepping up to support our communities and serve the people in building community power. We currently run two street kitchens in Dandenong and the CBD, where we provide food, clothes and essential items to the homeless. We're open to everyone and entirely community run, so if you're interested in donating, volunteering or just coming down for a chat, please check out our website at cudl.org.au or find us on social media. A 3CR supporter. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. And you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast this Saturday morning. And uh, that was fascinating. Yes, yes. Phil went through quite a lot, unfortunately. And I think it really, <laughs> it really highlights the state of what it's like um, well, democracy in motion. Yes, democracy specifically in one portion of Australia as opposed to, you know, a lot of others. Um, yeah, some real upsetting stuff there. Um, but so much of it was a sign of the times. And at the same time, a lot of it is very unacceptable for sure. Um, I'd like to think that we can do better than that in future. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway... Uh, this week, you, as you were saying at the beginning of the program, you we got contacted by uh, an organisation called US uh, Labor Podcasting, and they've uh, what they've industriously been doing is uh, putting on their uh, web page and they're, they're networking all all these industrial programs from around the world, mm, mm. and they've put Solidarity Breakfast up on that their site. Yes. And uh, that it's about uh, advancing the uh, the working class messages to an international audience. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you actually, and they have a, a weekly um, uh, chat, Zoom chat. Yeah, and Can- I, I went along, I guess, as a, a missionary of uh, 3CR and um, to some extent Australia as well, because we were one of the first, well, we were the first um, Australian Who got up at 5.30 in the morning to go to a Zoom. Oh, it was earlier than that. It was 4.30. Come on. <laughs> where's, your, where's your industrious spirit? <laughs> but I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And there were some lovely people to chat with. Um, Chris Garlock from Union City Radio uh, led the processions. And uh, we had the guest speaker of uh, Hamilton Nolan, who was a reporter for... I'm so sorry. It has completely evaded me. But he was reporting from Brooklyn and talking about a lot of the challenges in um, doing direct reporting from there. Um, But it was just such a friendly group of people and lots of chatter back and forth about what people were working on. And it was mostly just a nice little sounding board for people where other people could bounce off ideas from others. And, you know, as as a journalist, you do spend a lot of time researching. So to have people who are going, oh, well, I'm from this union and this is what we're looking into. Um, it's so good. It's so good. So, yes, more power to you. Um, but I had a had a chat with the uh, uh, Labor, Podca- Labor Radio Podcast Network. And, um, look, there was a couple of things that came up which um, I thought were particularly interesting. So these are my takeaways from it. Um, last week, you would have heard me talk about 
Amazon's uh, Do It Without Dues anti-union bashing website. Well, that came out a day before I had started talking about it and raising awareness of it on air. Consequently, through most of this week, it became a joke and it became an absolute laughing stock. And people responded um, in kind by saturating the website with false reports, um, trolling submissions, as well as uh, guides were up within a couple of days of how to bypass uh, typical sort of spam filters that a bot would pick up in these reports. So you could create reports that were very, very close to legitimate, but falsified enough to get someone, you know, reading the bulk of it so and what then realise, oh, this probably isn't true. So, so what you're saying is that uh, so uh, Amazon put up this uh, uh, thing on their site uh, saying, report unsanctioned union activity here, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, um, and then and also pu- putting uh, point forms around, uh, proselytising around anti-union yes. uh, ideas about why you you don't need the union. All you need to do is cosy up to your boss. Yes, just work harder. Yeah, just work harder. Yes, that's it's, what it's all about. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, um, but oh, some of the pictures that came out of that were hilarious. You had people putting uh, sections from Das Kapital just straight into the comments section of it <laughs> or, or quoting, um, you know, uh, um, newsreels um, that were about the Pinkertons. You know, a lot of people were drawing on these old classical ideas of unionism and solidarity in just totally attacking yeah, this get, website. Get, get friendly with the uh, nightstick that backs, bashes you on the head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. And the other thing that um, the uh, Labor Radio Podcast Network was talking about was something called the PRO Act. And I think in all of the saturation about Biden citing, um, signing a ton of executive orders about so much there oh, is a things, lot of work to do yeah, in America, yeah. of things, course. Things like um, uh, the LBTQ, I can't remember. The queer community. You know, yeah, the know. queer community. I'll take that. That's uh, yeah. fine. <laughs> too many letters, too many letters, but they're, but they're allowed to go into yeah. the army again. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> I can serve my patriotic duty and I can shoot die people. for my country. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. <laughs> but, but, you know, for some people. But it's still, it's still an important. I mean, the whole idea that. They would make do something like that anyway. But yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Um, yeah, look, duty for some, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So yep. go on, yep. go on, go on. Um, but the Pro Act is something that's currently moving through the House at the moment, and it did pass the House. What is it? It stands for the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which obviously you know that's ooh, instilling some uh, you know trade union spirit there. But one has to question whether or not it was a legitimate labor law reform and not just a law and order reform to allow, you know, union activity to some extent, because that's where we are at with unionism in America. Uh, But it is easily one of the most significant bills to directly strengthen workers' abilities to organize. And it passed the House on Thursday our time, Wednesday their time. So when I was chatting to the Labor Radio Podcast Network, um, they had... It had just passed the house, so of course, the the sentiment was buzzing and and awash with excitement, but still abjectly critical about whether or not it would pass the Senate, which is still Republican controlled at the moment. So I, I can understand their sentiments on that. To give you an idea about what the Pro Act contains and why it should be on your radar at the moment, it is amending some 
very, very old laws, you know, stretching back to 1960, 1970, to give workers more power during disputes at work. So that's one significant thing um, in that workers... Uh, can actually cite a union as part of their disputes and rely on them. Um, that's, you know, pretty fundamental to collective bargaining in general uh, in the fact that, you know, workers can have the power to call on a union to help them in disputes. Funny that. Um, I shouldn't be at this point, but, you know, come on. Um, big thing, adding penalties for companies that retaliate against workers who organize. So, this penalty is currently up to about fifty thousand US dollars. Um, obviously, this is nothing for companies like Amazon or really, really big tech firms. Um, but it's a step in the right direction. It's something, and the fact that there is a penalty now, even if it is just a fine, um, it's a good first step. Um, it, it's also weakening right to work laws in 27 states at the moment that would allow employees to forego participating in and paying dues to unions. So the the way that unions work in America is definitely more complex than, you know, in, in Australia, because unions offer so much more. Um, along with employees, they offer so much more. It's, it's a real sort of um, um, bargaining system when it comes to things like health insurance as part of a job contract. Um so, look, there's it, it is quite a complex piece of legislation, and I'm sifting through it as best as I can. But I, I'm obviously living in Australia, you know. I, I don't yeah, have yeah, a law but, degree, but, but <laughs> and but I've done as much research as I can. But interesting it's enough, big. because it's big, it's big, and uh, especially with the, uh, it, it's a battleground, uh, and it will be interesting to see what actually comes out in the wash. Yep. I think, um, look, whatever the bill's fate, it really highlights a growing push to re-examine the country's labour laws. And that's big. That's big news, you know. Um, the There is a National Labour Relations Board. Um, they are commissioned with upholding workers' rights to unionise or work together to improve their workplaces. And this Labour Relations Board actually has no ability to levy fines on employers when it finds that employers or companies have broken the law, like, say, for example, firing a worker if they start a union campaign, for example. They can do that, and there's no punishment. Yes, well, that tells you something, doesn't it? Mm. But luckily, the bill actually goes to directly supporting the National Labor Relations Board. Um, and that does, you know, that the NLRB does directly enforce the federal labor law in America. So, um, oh, and there was workers' compensation involved. So the NLRB is directly responsible for the workers' compensation. It's not going through a judiciary. Um, so... It, it is at least... Um, what they're trying to do is uh, set some cornerstones. It yeah. seems extraordinary. I mean, I, I've recently been reading a trilogy of books set in the early part of the 20th century in America, and it uh, part of it is a description of a wobbly, a fellow who's part mm. of the wobbly uh, movement. Um, and it's just incredible the low bar that uh, workers have had to climb from. Uh, their rights are so low. Oh yeah, so low. Yeah, and it's uh, only get, it is only getting worse in America. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the last thing that caught my attention on the Pro Act is that it allows people currently classified as contractors to be given the status of employees for the purpose of union organising. 
Ah, this is this is really big because the gig economy in America is huge. So this paves the way for companies like Li- oh sorry workers at Lyft, Uber, DoorDash. They can organize with unions because they're not contractors anymore. And so much of how gig economies work relies on weak labor laws. If labor laws are strong, then a gig economy collapses because there is no way in hell that any union would legitimately support work that is organized basically within the hour, no, to the minute, by applications at the push of a button. Um, it's unstable work. It's not supported by unions. And if the PRO Act does pass the Senate, fingers crossed. Here's hoping, then you could see some pretty substantial labor reform change in America.
I'm out the side of uh, the Magistrates Court this morning. Uh, 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 Chris Breen is uh, going into the Magistrates Court today because of his, the incitement uh, charges that are being put to him about a car rally during COVID uh, defending refugees who were held at the uh, hotel in Preston. G'day Chris, how are you feeling today? Um, I'm feeling good, I'm pleased to have support here. Well, I mean, as good as one can expect to be when you're you know, facing charges for um, standing up against injustice and, you know, effectively having my job threatened as a result of this. Yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah. Does that it does affect your job. Uh, well, that's unclear. My lawyers and my union say uh, that it shouldn't, but if I was to be found guilty, I would have to go through a process with Victoria Institute of Teaching. Yeah, because it's an unrelated to, to teaching. It's a, you know, political... Still it's, a, yeah. it's a mark against your legal status. Um, can you just give me an, uh, your feelings about the government's uh, release of the uh, refugees in the Park Hotel? Uh, it is absolutely fantastic. Um, there's been 50 released now, there's another 12 who are coming out on Thursday and it just highlights the importance and the need for you know, public uh, visible protest. Um, it's been the protest inside and outside detention that have got to this point. Um, not just protest as a legal action, but protest has been the, you know, the beating heart of the refugee movement that enables um, everything else. And of course, there are still around 150 uh, Medivac refugees inside. And so we are going to need uh, protests to continue to get the rest of the refugees out. So it's very important, uh, you know, not just for myself, but for the refugee movement, the wider social movements and unions, that these charges are beaten and that the right to protest isn't undermined. We are going to need it desperately in the coming year. Thanks very much. Thank you. Why is it important for you to be here? I'm from 3CR. I'm from 3CR. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, can you tell me uh, why it's important for you to be here? Mm -hmm. uh, I think the, the whole charge uh, on Chris Breen um, is based on the COVID restrictions, uh, and I think it's been a bit of an overreach, uh, the charge of incitement that he's, he, he's here to defend himself against. Um, the rally that he organised was COVID safe. It probably went you know, over and beyond the actual requirements for us to be COVID safe. Um, but using the COVID restrictions to limit our right to protest, I think is a dangerous precedent to make. Um, and so I'm here to protect our right to protest, which we can do uh, successfully while under COVID restrictions. Um, and so I'm hoping that this goes for in Chris's way so that this doesn't set a precedent for the future. We're worried that um, the rights that have been restricted under the COVID, um, COVID safe situation that we're in now are, are not going to be returned to us. And so once these have been taken away, it'll be very, very hard to get these rights back. Thanks. Sorry. We'll get this uh, solidarity rally underway. My name is David Glans. I'm with the Refugee Action Collective who's organised this protest in support of Chris Breen, a fellow RAC member. Thank you everybody for coming and first of all, of course, we acknowledge that we stand on the land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations. This is Aboriginal land where sovereignty was never ceded. 
And I think we should all be inspired by the massive Invasion Day rally that took place yesterday. It was evidence that tens of thousands of people stand against racism and also are prepared to stand up and protest at a time of the pandemic, a COVID safe protest, because we cannot delay the fight against Aboriginal deaths in custody until after the pandemic. And that's what RAC believes about the situation for refugees. We cannot delay the fight to free the refugees because of the pandemic. The pandemic puts people in detention at greater risk than they would otherwise be. So we're here today because the Refugee Action Collective organized a COVID safe protest on April the 10th, which was Good Friday. And what we did was to get in our cars, one person per car or two people from a household, and drive past the Mantra Hotel to show care and compassion for the men who were detained in the Mantra. Those men were detained for more than a year in that hotel with no fresh air, no access to exercise, being driven slowly into deep despair and mental distress by the Australian government. Men who were innocent refugees and had already spent six years in Australian government detention. And we said back in April, these men are at risk. They're at risk because they're locked up in what is essentially a prison. They're at risk because the security guards who come in and out every day could bring in the virus. And a few months later, tragically, we were proven correct in our argument because it was casualised security guards coming and going from the quarantine hotels that spread the second wave into our community. And although thankfully no refugees got COVID, it could so easily have been the men in the mantra. And that's why we protested on April the 10th. We said these men should be free. They've committed no crime. They are innocent. They are victims. They are victims of persecution. They have been recognized as refugees by this country, and yet they are locked up. And in a COVID safe way, we wanted to reach out to those men and show them that they were not alone, they were not forgotten, and their cause for freedom was as valid, uh, was completely valid. And on that day, 30 people were stopped in their cars while they were safer than anybody going shopping in Bunnings or Big W. And remember, back in April last year, people could shop at Bunnings and Big W without masks. That was permitted by the Chief Health Officer, but sitting in your car and driving past the hotel was barred. And we say, shame on that, that was a crude attempt to shut down dissent a crude attempt to shut down protest. So 30 people were stopped and fined, and we're still contesting those fines. $50,000 of fines for reaching out and showing compassion with our fellow human beings. But for Chris, the story was different. He never got to the protest. He was arrested in his home by Preston Police, taken to Preston Police Station. All his phones and computers and his teenage son's computer seized by the police. He was held for nine hours. The crime he is going to be accused of here today is incitement. He incited people to show care and compassion and solidarity. Should we all be guilty of sharing, uh, of, of sharing that crime? All of us are guilty 
of standing up for human solidarity, for care and compassion, and for freedom of refu refugees. But Chris was picked on because his crime was so much worse. He put a Facebook event online, a Facebook event, calling on people to care for the refugees. And that's the crime he faces today, the crime of incitement. Now, the police haven't used the crime of incitement for many years. In fact, it's not clear if they've ever used it. It's part of the 1958 Crimes Act. And the reason we're joined by so many people here today, including representatives of unions, the National Tertiary, Edu National Tertiary Education Union, the Australian Education Union, and others, is because we all realize that if Chris goes down, it's not just a blow to him and the refugee movement, it creates a threat to anybody who wants to stand up for freedom or justice. The union movement, the climate movement, anybody campaigning for a better world. So that's why we're all here today. Now, our next speaker is someone who is a, a devoted and active member of the refugee campaign, and that is Apsara. Apsara is the secretary of the Victorian Greens Multicultural uh, Committee, and I'd now please now make her welcome. Thank you very much. I too want to acknowledge that we're meeting on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, um, and I would like to pay my respects to elders, uh, past and present. Today, I mean, we're meeting outside the magistrate's court to process the fact that Chris Breed was unjustly charged with incitement to break health laws for organising a peaceful protest that involved the use of a car convoy to the Mantra Hotel. What is really ironic about that charge is that while Victoria Police was charging Chris and other protesters, they were complicit in the federal government's detention of innocent men who were supposed to be in Melbourne to access medical treatment under the Medivac legislation. So we have to remember that Victoria Police has been providing cover for federal government and complicit in the torture of these men. Now I've known Chris Breen since 2018 and he's a man of great integrity. Chris is a fellow anti-racism activist who has for years done great work highlighting the plight of refugees and asylum seekers in this country. And we must remember this is an abhorrent detention system that we have put in place. And all Australians are complicit in the system that we run unless we are speaking up against it. We work, so we have worked regularly and have held a number of big peaceful anti-racism rallies, forums and speak outs. And what Chris has shown in all of these situations is that he is willing to do the hard work to highlight the plight of people who are treated unjustly, both here in Australia and around the world. So I want to now share with you a little story about four men that have been released from detention, four Tamil men, four of those 46 men. What they have had to do is rely on, the, um, on many of us in the community to help them be, um, to, to find a secure pathway to living in the community. So for example, in the case of these four men, we have been able to secure a home a friend of us uh, was able to give the four men a home. For two months, they will be living in the home rent-free. 
we have another friend who has uh, offered to pay the utility bills for two months for these men and then pay them $150 a week just so that they can actually buy food to put on the, uh, on the table. Why should our friends be doing this? This is a responsibility of the federal government and also the state government has some responsibility as well. Yes, yes, yes. So, the federal government should be ensuring that when the men are released into the community, they have housing, they have um, social security, they have access to TAFE and university, and also, a pro uh, also job, um, job networks and things like that. The state government too can help out in this situation and they can provide access to TAFE. Many of these men need to get access uh, to um, uh, brush up on their English skills. They will need to get tickets, they will need to do certificates, because many, uh, even blue collar jobs require tickets and certificates for, uh, to actually do the job. These are going to cost thousands of dollars for the men and what it does is it pushes the responsibility of crowdfunding and what have you to, uh, to community members who care about the well-being of these men. We don't want to see these men um, end up in, des in destitution and are not going to let that happen. But at the end of the day, our federal governments and our state governments have a huge responsibility to uh, support these men when they come out of detention. They should never have been in detention in the first place. So in this case here, I urge the magistrate to drop these ludicrous charges against Chris and to, for Victoria Police to withdraw approximately $50,000 worth of fines issued to refugees on the 10th of April 2020. So to continue our action, we are doing um, a weekly actions outside Dan Andrews' office. These actions are every Wednesday, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. What we're asking Dan Andrews to do is to provide um, the men with access to tape and also to provide housing. And then we continue our actions outside the um, Department of Home Affairs and the reason why we keep going back to the Department of Home Affairs is because there are people still locked in detention around the country and also offshore. Every single refugee needs to be released into the community. But once they're also released, they cannot be put on visa E-class, which is a crazy, um, crazy, crazy visa. So visa is called a final departure Bridging visa. What the fuck is that? We need um, uh, all refugees to be uh, put onto um, uh, permanent visas that allow them to be um, to uh, uh, work towards citizenship. Something that is very important for all refugees. And there's thousands of refugees living in limbo like this around the country. So. What these 46 men have highlighted and I think have drawn attention to is just how awful our, uh, our federal government is and just how punitive they are both when they have the men in det of the refugees in detention and when they come out of detention as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Akhtara. And you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast. I mm -hmm. listened to the actual... Uh, uh, contested hearing because they had it online it was uh, 
the, it's going to, it wasn't settled. It, uh, they're going to come back on the 10th of February to, uh, list, uh, to continue uh, with the hearing. Uh, we're going to move quickly on to uh, a few vox pop from the uh, Invasion Day that uh, was mentioned. It was a massive affair in Melbourne. Uh, and it was right across the country. There were lots of uh, gatherings uh, to uh, mark um, the, a day of mourning, mm. effectively. So we'll go straight into that. Uh, go for it. I have just walked from uh, the top of uh, Burke Street all the way round to uh, Swanston Street and I'm still walking now towards Flinders Street and there are people who have stopped everything in the middle of Melbourne Central because of the call for a recognition of Invasion Day. and I was wondering what you thought about this. Um, I'm 84 and I've never been to any kind of a demonstration so I thought I'd come. I'm astonished at the good organisation by the police and the protesters. They're behaving perfectly well and uh, seems like a lot of fun. <laughs> Tell me why it was important for you to come. Well, I would have, I apparently mistakenly thought the protest was about the date, the 26th of being an appropriate date, but it seems most of these people want to give the land back to the Aboriginals. Yeah, yeah, uh, that just smokescreen the uh, business about Australia Day being on the wrong date. Yeah. Very specific. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just struck me the other day, a person my age can think this, if the Japanese had successfully taken over Australia, uh, I would hope that my grandchildren would be doing something like this in years to come. <laughs> but you can't unscramble the, uh, the omelette, can you, really? Well, if they seem to be doing a very big pushback yeah. for a change, uh, a dialogue, a, a genuine understanding of uh, the uh, a multi-cultural nature of this country and who are the first inhabitants. Yeah. But I wonder, any of those thousands of people, do they expect something's going to happen tomorrow or soon? Well, this has been going on for decades yeah. now. Yeah. In yeah. fact, the first uh, day of mourning for this date was 1938. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. It's, it's been clouded by um, the economic arguments of exploitation, really. Yeah. It hardly is an appropriate date, is it? <laughs> no, and you can see their point. Yes, yeah, yeah, so I, I can see the point, but I don't know. 
Anyway, you can. I can. I can't get. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Oh, this is 3CR. I just wanted to know your impression of the march. In my what? How you feel about the march? I don't feel any in any way at all. I don't know what's going. Really, I think that. The Aboriginal won the whole Australia back to them, is it, or something, is it? We, 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 we better go and throw ourselves in the sea and let the sharks have in us. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that's what they're saying, but, um, yeah, but it is a big march, isn't it? Yeah, it's been going on for a long time here, I don't know. But, but what, who, do, who, did they, who did they try to embrace? Who did they embrace? Who did they try to embrace? Who did they try to leave a message to? I think... Uh, Politicians and uh, power brokers. Oh, well, I don't know. What, what the, it doesn't matter what I say. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with me. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. But look, it's still going on for, for a long time. I think I, I've been here better now and it's still going. Well, I've got nothing much to say. I don't know. Okay. Can I ask you? I'm from 3CR and I was just wondering why you thought it was important to come out today. I think that the culture of Australia is um, centred around a tradition of Australian identity that isn't true and Australia Day really is like uh, a microcosm for that and I don't want to be a part of it um, and I totally reject that and also it is Aboriginal land, we're on stolen land and we should acknowledge that particularly today because it is a day of mourning. Yeah. <laughs> I'm from 3CR. Do you want to give me an idea of why you've come out today? Why it's important? Well, I just think it's important. It's actually indecent to celebrate Australia Day on the 26th of January. And that's why we're here. We want to change the date. Have you got anything to say? What, what do you think about the size of the march? It's great. It's a lot of people. They weren't expecting that many people. Excellent. Yeah, me too. It's fantastic. They need to pay attention, don't they? Is it unusual for you to be here? Um, no, everyone needs to be here. It's a great, it's a great thing. Thank you. from 3CR. Can you tell me why it's important to be here today? Uh, why it's important to be here? Because of, you know, it's inherently wrong that they, you know, chose this day. Um, first of all, because like, you know, there's no like, I don't know, there's no like inherent like reason to do it other than just them being tickets. <laughs> you, know, you know, so we need. It's not. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> can I ask you, Don from 3CR, can I ask you why it's important that so many people came out? Because uh, they're acknowledging what's happened in this country. They're seeing... They want change, you know? And, like, when you look around, there's all different cultures here. Um, it's a... It's a... You know, abolish the day. Don't, they don't need the day. The day... To celebrate, like here, what it just says on the sign, look, abolish Australia, Australia Day. A violent history is nothing to celebrate. That's it. Yeah. Thanks, mate. No worries. Can you tell me, I'm from 3CR, can you tell me why it was important to be here? Yes. For me, it's important to be here, to stand with people who have said we want to stand together now we, we can stand together were you here at the beginning of these types of marches have you been here before this is my first time my first time here at this march oh, at the, wow. really wow 
It's yeah. very special.
Free Palestine Melbourne is holding an online forum exploring the implications of a number of Arab nations normalizing relations with Israel while it continues to occupy Palestine and oppress the Palestinian people. The forum will explore the implications for justice for Palestinians, for geopolitics and peace in the region, and for the expanding gulf between autocratic rulers and their people. Speakers include Dr. Khaled Hroub from Northwestern University in Qatar, Dr. Ahmed Jamil Azam from Berzet University, and Palestinian and local author, playwright and activist, Dr. Samah Sabawi. Join us the 10th of February, Wednesday night at 8pm. Register at fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. That's fpmelbourne.org forward slash events. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Would you like to get involved in the decision-making process at 3CR? Nominations are now open in 3CR's Community Radio Federation elections. You can stand as a subscriber representative and have valuable input into the programming and future direction of this diverse and dynamic radio station. Nominations are due by Wednesday the 17th of February, 5pm. For more information, contact 3CR Station Manager on 9419 8377 or download the nomination form at the 3CR website 3cr.org.au forward slash people and you're back with Annie and Jordan on Solidarity Breakfast on this fine Saturday morning well mm. it's probably not that fine out there at the moment it was a bit dull oh, and great. Know. there's no windows in here <laughs> No trapped in, in here it. forever. <laughs> That's right. And uh, we were just discussing that uh, our final piece, which was Tony Birch uh, talking about his uh, book, uh, the the white the white the white girl, is uh, too long. So we'll we'll roll it over till next week because it's got a fantastic reading in it that uh, is uh, absolutely uh, mind-boggling, actually, and emotionally. Uh, uh, Right to the point, it would have been perfect after the Invasion Day uh, pieces, but we'll do it next week just to keep you in in tune with uh, what needs to happen for a a fairer and more just Australia. Um, Most definitely. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, And I thoroughly look forward to it. But did you want to proffer any reflections on it in the lead-up to that piece next week? Oh, well, no. I was just going to say that uh, it's been an interesting... um, uh, week because of the big events like uh, Invasion Day, very big. Uh, and there are a couple of things that uh, I reflect on is uh, that I'd completely forgotten that in the past uh, there was an Australia Day uh, a gathering or march or something that 
usually became uh, overwhelmed by uh, over the last few years has been completely overwhelmed by the invasion day uh, march that comes down from the uh, top of the city and uh, usually is much larger than the Australia Day piece. But uh, it was it just goes to show that the tenor of uh, the whole consciousness has changed so much that I'd even forgotten mm. that there used to be. I mean, it didn't even disturb my thoughts. I, I'd forgotten that there would normally be a counter march down the other way. Quite bizarre, really. Uh, and then um, th- when I got home, because I didn't stay for the entire uh, t- t- time because uh, I thought it was winding up, which is a real no no for a person who's supposed to be covering an event, mm. always stay till the bitter end. But. Um, <laughs> The uh, thing was that I thought it was all uh, wound up, but when I turned on and uh, the TV and watched the uh, to see if there were any uh, coverage, uh, uh, apparently the only coverage Channel Seven had was uh, when a proud boy um, came and uh, at the at final part of the event when people had obviously dispersed a because proud there were boy. a proud boy. <laughs> yes, that's right. It's like one sausage Look, roll. Look, he, he was very proud. That's that's good on him. <laughs> I know. What it, good what on it, him. <laughs> I was talking to someone else about this. Said, proud boy, they said. What do they mean? I said, they put a, they put a sign on their chest. Uh, like, proud boy. <laughs> Look, if you need to remind yourself that you're proud, you're, you're probably not. Uh, Sorry, but, uh, you know. And do you remain a boy, even if you're... Um, it's funny because that's I... That's okay. I'm as masculine as the next guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. There was, uh, anyway, the only footage that Channel 7 had on was uh, the stoush where, and the police uh, completely uh, surrounded him. Mm. But there was only mm. one. And uh, and then a person told me that uh, they had been going... They'd been in um, St Kilda Road at on that day because they had to go somewhere and mm. that was across the road from the... Um, a shrine, and they took a picture of six proud boys scattered at the top of the platform there. Oh yes, uh, and the they were wondering the what they yeah. were doing. Yep, right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they obviously had little scattered events in different parts of the world, but mm, uh, interesting. Obviously, completely overwhelmed by mm. the invasion day event. Yeah. Um, and as I said, because uh, I've been to many over the years, and I remember it very, very small, very, very small. And uh, and then I remember the first time everyone took over the uh, intersection at uh, Flinders and Swanston and, and had a smoking ceremony and there was no amplification mm. and it was really, really fascinating. Uh, change, a uh, bit like uh, that idea of uh, the salt water meeting the fresh water, you know, which is interesting because, you know, that's what uh, uh, Yarra River down down further near the sea there. Hmm. Uh, it's been obscured by all the industrial and uh, built-up uh, domestic buildings. But yep. actually one of the most significant things about that is that that is a point where the uh, the saltwater and the freshwater meet. Mm. Very which, poetic. Yeah, yeah, but it's a very important element mm. to uh, uh, First Peoples' uh, understanding of uh, the environment. The only reflection that I have to offer from Invasion Day, I, I, as I said, I did say at home listening to the broadcast, but um, obviously Sky News happens to be on a lot of television screens around Australia. And uh, as things, you know, as you make your way about the world every once in a while, your glance meets the eyes of Andrew Bolt and his reflections on Invasion Day. 
were, you know, mostly in what was to be expected. But he mentioned that there was a lot of young people at the <laughs> Invasion Day rally, and I was thinking, oh, hmm, I wonder why that is. But um, he went on to say, look, there's a lot of young people who also appeared at the climate strike rallies and a lot of, you know, pre-adult, essentially, um, code for not, you know, you're not able to think for yourself in any sense kind of talk. Um, and his only conclusion was not that there was some sort of intergenerational issue, was that, oh, it had to be a conspiracy. And, you know, it's parents goading their children into doing these things and, and pressuring them, which do you have no better response for other than relying on traditionalist structures? I mean, it's it's just, it feels a little easy of an argument. Right? Oh, don't you think he's losing his grip, you mean? Yeah, somewhat. If you have to, <laughs> if you have to fall back on, you know, traditionalist morals, you're not exactly setting a strong democratic argument nowadays. It's not well, factual. I don't think, I don't think he's, he's aiming for that. I don't think he's aiming for that. Uh, trying to, uh, but it's a pretty pathetic uh, comeback for obvious uh, need for change. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Do you want to go to, say, burial for a bit? <laughs> well, we've come to the end of the program today and uh, hopefully we'll have uh, a huge amount of interesting things to hmm. uh, dish up for your uh, politics with your Wheaties next week. Uh, I hope you have a good week, Jordan. Thank you. Same to you, Annie. We've still got a lot on, you know, coming up for this week and uh, hopefully it should be another exciting Solidarity Breakfast for next week.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.